I have always wished that my Spanish was better. Living in Southern California and going to Mexico a lot for surfing, weekend trips, stuff like that, it's just very handy. I took three years of it in high school, but I really didn't learn that much from the books. I basically only got really good at asking various types of people where the library is located, which turns out to be not a phrase you use that often when you're on vacation. Rosetta Stone is a much more organic and easy way to learn a new language because it really immerses you in that language. It's the most trusted language learning program available on desktop, and also it has an app. Rosetta Stone is the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Like I said, it's fast language acquisition because it really immerses you in the language. There's no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language. They also have speech recognition features like True Accent, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's also an amazing value. They offer a lifetime membership, which includes all 25 languages, which is perfect for any and all trips you might have in your future with various languages you might want to learn. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Otherworld listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com otherworld today. This episode is brought to you by Harry's. Harry sent me a razor starter kit recently to try, and I put it to use very quickly because I keep myself clean shaven. In fact, I pretty much shave every single day because I have lots of facial hair. It grows back very quickly, and it's also really thick, and it hurts a lot when I shave normally, with a bad razor at least. So I've been using Harry's razors for like a week now. They're very nice. It's a five-blade razor, and I have to say, it really does effortlessly shave through my normally very annoying facial hair. It doesn't hurt one bit, no tugging, anything like that. And it stayed sharp the entire time as well. I'm very impressed so far. It also has kind of a good weight to it. It's like heavier than normal. I don't know. It's like, it's just got a good weight to it. I really like that. I didn't know I liked it before, but now I know I like it. I also really liked the shaving cream just because it smells really good. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of other big brands. Harry's has a customizable delivery option for scheduled refills as low as $2, half of what you pay from other big brands. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com otherworld. That's harrys.com otherworld for a $3 trial set. Welcome to Otherworld. I'm your host, Jack Wagner. This week, we have a story from a man who's also named Jack. Jack is from the UK, and while pursuing a PhD in physics, he became very interested in human consciousness and began experimenting in a way that set him down a very interesting adventure, I guess you could say. This episode covers something that we have not tackled on this show before. Magic. And I'm not talking about the rabbit in a hat kind. I'm talking about the kind of magic that you spell with a CK. Ceremonial magic. For those of you who don't know, ceremonial magic is a type of practice that involves rituals and symbols to connect with supernatural forces and achieve supernatural spiritual goals, I guess you could say. They use various tools such as wands, candles, pentagrams, and invocations. And this practice is often associated with a couple groups. One of them is the Golden Dawn and a guy named Aleister Crowley. This is also something that is very famously practiced by Alan Moore, the graphic novelist behind The Watchmen. It's something that's been in my peripheral for a while, but I must confess, I do not know a lot about this and it's a very, very big topic, but I think this episode, while it's barely going to scratch the surface of this, might be the perfect way to begin talking about this topic on the show because our storyteller, Jack, was a beginner himself who just kind of started toying around with this stuff and began having some very interesting experiences as he learned just the very beginner level 
concepts of this world. Okay, I normally don't insert my opinions too much in this show, but I think I should at the very least put a little do not try this at home warning on this episode. Anything that involves actively calling out or engaging with the spirit realm is no joke. This is a big common theme I've noticed between stories that are otherwise so different and no judgment whatsoever to anybody who practices magic. I'm just saying for the people who do not know what this is, I would recommend proceeding with caution or not proceeding at all. Whether you believe in it or not, my personal advice is better safe than sorry. And I think even the most seasoned magic practitioners would agree with me on expressing this caution. So do not try this at home. Be very careful if you do. That being said, we're about to hear the story from a person who did decide to try this at home. In fact, I think it had a very profound impact on his life. So this episode is a bit more informational than normal, but it also includes some very strange personal experiences. This episode is called The Ghost of a Flea, and you're listening to Otherworld. Hello? It's Bobby? Yes, it is. We're still, you still rolling? Yeah, let us, let us know when you're ready. Okay, hey, okay, um... That's a feel for the passing question. Can you tell me Samo and the Pacific Island get pretty superstitious? This is a, a story about... Yeah, all right. Well, my name's Jack. I'm 45 years old and I live in London uh, and I work as an artist. Um, my kind of route to being an artist uh, has been kind of an unusual one. So uh, I'll kind of mention this context because it has some bearing on the on the thing I'm going to talk about. So I um, I went to art college when I was like 19, but then I realized that I wanted to do something more academic. So I did a philosophy degree. And I then worked as a music producer, like electronic music producer for about eight years. And then felt kind of unsatisfied doing that and also felt very broke doing that. And um, started getting interested in science. So basically when I was about 29, I did the equivalent of like high school physics and maths, which I'd never really done it when I was actually at school. And then ended up getting into um, a university called Imperial College in London, which I guess is kind of like the British equivalent of MIT. It's like a very prestigious science university. And I did a degree in theoretical physics and then a master's in theoretical physics. And my plan was I was going to become a physicist, you know, go on and do a PhD. And it was kind of during the course of that that I just... Basically, by the fourth year of doing that, I just got quite depressed at how uncreative it was. And I really, really wanted to be doing, you know, I really missed doing music and doing something kind of more creative. And I left uh, having got this master's and decided that I didn't want to do a PhD and was really feeling like, fuck, I've like wasted my life, basically. And um, kind of messed around for a year. And then I was just really lucky to fall in with some people who were, who were artists and we were having conversations about, you know, I guess, consciousness and spirituality and religion and science and creativity and all this stuff. And I was suddenly like, shit, whatever these people are, this is what I am. So I'm an artist, but I've got a very sciencey kind of background. And uh, I think for what I'm going to talk about, this is kind of like, this has been a really invaluable tool, like having a good explanatory framework for how things really, you know, not necessarily how things really work, but a good model for how the universe kind of works. So like I said, I finished my master's, didn't want to go on to become a physicist and was really depressed. And I happened to meet uh, someone who became a friend who was this, she's a, a woman who's just a complete kind of hippie into kind of crystals and energy and all this kind of stuff. And I found it really funny because I literally just come out of this incredibly hard, you know, I was studying um, 
this area of science called quantum gravity, which is this super hardcore mathematical, very rigorous kind of area. And to suddenly be meeting this kind of woman who was really invested in just like, yeah, astrology, crystals, um, uh, space clearing, kind of ghosts and all this stuff. And I found it really funny and was kind of laughing, but was also kind of could just feel myself being really compelled by it. And I also, around this time, so this was in um, 2013, kind of 2013 and 2014, I also discovered uh, the works of Jung, the you know, famous Swiss psychologist, who is a really great gateway for if you want to kind of um, start thinking about mysticism in a kind of scientific kind of way. And I found him really helpful for just getting me out of this kind of depression and this funk that I'd got into. And I started writing down my dreams, started noticing all these kind of interesting symbols uh, that were kind of occurring in them. And then, so <laughs> in uh, 2014, uh, my friend acquired some really, really strong magic mushrooms uh, that we actually found growing right next to this place, this Imperial College, this science university. And they do, it was in a private garden. And um, they do a lot of research into psychedelics there, like really hard science, you know, giving um, like end of life kind of patients psychedelics. And it makes them have this sort of, so they do it in a clinical setting and it makes them have this sort of profound mystical experience that kind of changes their perspective on the fact that their death is imminent. And, um, but obviously there's loads of red tape associated with getting psilocybin because it's illegal. So we had a theory that these researchers must just be growing these, because they're not the type of mushrooms that grow in the UK. Like we only get these little ones called Liberty Caps growing in the countryside in the UK, but these were like some hardcore, like Mexican kind of blue kind of big magic mushrooms. So anyway, my friend just picked a load of them and, uh, we decided to take them, and um, but I kind of had this idea, like I've you know done that kind of thing when I was a teenager and in my early twenties, but I was sort of in my late thirties at this point, and um, we decided like let's do them. So this was me and my housemate. We said let's do them in a kind of ritual setting. So I this was before I'd got into the kind of magic stuff that I'm going to talk about. I kind of felt it was really important to prepare the space. So basically we just invented this thing where we opened up all the doors and the windows, played rock music really, really loud and went around just kind of blasting energy out. So doing these kind of big physical motions, blasting kind of stale energy out through the kind of open windows and doors. And then we shut all the windows, lowered the lighting, put on some really peaceful kind of Brian Eno type ambient music and made it into this really lovely environment. And then we took the magic mushrooms and it turns out we'd accidentally miscalculated the dose and we took five times a higher dose than we intended and completely lost our fucking minds. But because we, we'd made, I was really, really grateful basically that we'd done this thing because it felt so, we felt like we'd really made uh, an environment in which it was safe to basically just completely dissolve your ego and your personality without it feeling scary or dangerous, you know? It was almost like preparing like an operating theater and sanitizing it. Um, I, well, <laughs> so at one point, I, I remember I was like, basically I get a really bad stomach on mushrooms. Like I feel really sick. And I was lying on the sofa and I could feel my eyes starting to close. And I was like, this is it, I'm dying. I'm literally, this, I'm gonna die. I've, I've like accidentally taken poisonous mushrooms and I'm gonna die. And I could see my friend and he was like doing some like weird yoga move on the floor really slowly. But I just saw him and I was like, he's already dead and I'm now dying. This is it, we're gonna die. And then my friend looked at me and his face was bright red and he kind of looked like the devil. And he just said, dude, come on to the floor, man. And I was like, okay. And I kind of got onto the floor and then we spent about six hours just laughing on the floor. And um, I was convinced, I'd been reading a lot about Mexican um, mushroom rituals because you know, the guy that sort of made magic mushrooms famous was this banker, Gordon Wasson. He's, he's like a sort of, he worked for some big American investment bank, but then he went to Mexico because he'd heard about these mushroom cults. And um, so I was thinking a lot about Mexico. So. In this trip, we were just in London, but I, I kept thinking that we were in a field at night in Mexico and was really surprised when I'd look around a bit and see these kind of familiar surroundings. And I remember the, another thing I remember happening was 
I couldn't remember who I was and I was trying to piece back together my personality. So I remember I was kind of saying, right, yeah, I've got a sense of humor. So I'm going to, I'll get that bit. And then I was like, I was kind of looking at, I had these kind of various books around on kind of art and science and stuff. And I was like, right, yeah, okay. So I've, I must be interested in all that stuff. And it was kind of literally me objectively trying to assemble who I was as a person. I also tried to down a jar of honey at one point, which is kind of, kind of funny. It was something, it was definitely a kind of a, a stepping out of, you know, the, who you normally think you are, right? Which I guess is kind of the point of a lot of this stuff. So I carried on kind of being interested in um, kind of mysticism and I was reading about it and very interested in kind of meditation and stuff. In about 2015, I listened to an interview with the comic book writer Alan Moore, who wrote uh, Watchmen and V for Vendetta, um, who's a kind of a bit of a kind of legend in certain circles. He's a practicing magician and um, has been doing it since the 90s. And he's also an incredibly kind of erudite and intelligent um, articulator of, of magic. When I say magic here, I'm talking about ceremonial magic. So um, magic has lots of different definitions. Alistair Crowley, who's a very famous magician from the early 20th century, had a definition of it that it was, um, I'm going to slightly misquote this, but it's basically causing change in accordance with will. But really, um, you know, causing change in accordance with will, that means everything is a magical act, right? You know, it's kind of like, you know, opening up a door is causing a change in the world in accordance with your will. And then other people have changed that slightly to be um, causing change in accordance with will in a way that can't be explained by contemporary science, which seems like a better kind of explanation for me. Yeah, so basically I bought a book on how to practice magic. It's a really well-known book called Modern Magic by uh, an author called Donald Craig. I have to admit, this was in 2015, it's now 2023, so eight years later. <clears throat> I've still only got about a third the way through the book. So I'm not a kind of avid student of this stuff. I've practiced it a lot and I've had a lot of personal experience with it, but not, you know, I'm definitely not an expert and I couldn't teach it to anybody else. Um, you know, if anybody's interested in learning it, they should, they should try to find, you know, a reputable source to kind of learn this stuff. The, two, the kind of rituals that you learn first, the, the kind of bedrock of practicing magic, uh, you learn something called the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. Okay, it sounds very kind of spooky and kind of occult. It's a banishing ritual. And so what it's about, it's a bit like um, what I was talking about earlier with the mushroom trip. It's about preparing a space for yourself. So making a safe environment in which you can then do whatever kind of magic work you want to do. So there are loads of descriptions of this ritual on YouTube. I won't kind of like give the really kind of the, I won't talk you all the way through it, but it begins by imagining that your body is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you effectively fill the whole universe. Um, so there's, a, there's an idea in magic. Um, a lot of, so by the way, a lot of this stuff is based on the Jewish Kabbalah. So I'm not of the Jewish faith. And, you know, this is really what happened was in the start of the 20th century, a group of uh, occultists in mostly in London called the Golden Dawn basically culturally appropriated a load of shit from Jewish mysticism, kind of bits of like Egyptian mythology, bits of kind of Christian stuff, and I think probably other influences and turned it into this big kind of mashup that's basically based on the, um, the tree of life which you get in um, Jewish mysticism, which is this kind of complex symbol that represents the kind of universe and all the different planes of existence, all the way down from the physical world, which is right down at the bottom, up to God, which is kind of right at the top. And it can also be viewed as kind of like, a, you know, there's this idea in magic of as above, so below, and that the macrocosm and the microcosm are somehow um, this kind of intertwined kind of, there's a kind of symmetry between them. So the tree of life also represents, you know, maybe the image of just a human mind with kind of like your, the kind of just your body all the way up to the kind of highest kind of being kind of enlightenment nirvana stage at the top. 
So you begin this ritual by making your body become as big as the whole universe, which again, you know, kind of relates to this thing of like, you know, you, you are the universe effectively, right? You never really, we can't really imagine anything beyond ourselves. Like everything you're ever experiencing is really being produced by your own mind, interacting with this kind of unknowable external world. So, um, so this is the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. So you make yourself get really, really, imagine you've got really huge. Then you do various kind of actions, like you draw five-pointed stars in the air. You say these uh, Hebrew words, and you know it probably takes takes about five to ten minutes to perform. And then you've you've cleared the space, and you're ready to do the next part. The next part is something called the middle pillar ritual. So what this is, it imagine you imagine that you have a ball of light at the top of your head. And you say, you basically do this thing called vibrating the words, which is where you chant the words. So you might kind of say, and imagine that this ball of light above your head is kind of gaining any kind of energy and power. And then you basically draw it down through, you know, another word would be your chakras, right? These kind of supposed energy centers in the body that run through the middle of your body from the top of your head. So what you do in this middle pillar ritual, so you've kind of, you've done your banishing, you've kind of made the space clear. Then you're basically imagining, I think of it as becoming like an antenna, right? You're kind of turning yourself into a physical antenna that's gonna kind of receive this energy from, from somewhere. You draw it down, so you chant these kind of words at each of these, um, they're called the sephirot, which is the, um, you know, what these kind of chakras are called. Um, yeah, so after you've, uh, after you've kind of drawn this energy, which you visualize as light down through your body, the final part of it, and again, I feel kind of like, you know, I've, I don't want, I'm definitely not kind of trying to give a lesson here on how you perform magic, right? Because I'm definitely not an expert. And I hope that anybody listening to this would go away and actually learn how to do it properly if they're interested. Or not, kind of, or not or, learn. Or not. Or not. Exactly, in fact, I can exactly. think there's a certain Romani gentleman in the yes. the northern Indiana area right now who's probably getting very frustrated hearing this. Yeah. So right. He, he might Gina. say he might. I I think that's what I'm thinking of. Would say fuck around and find out. Exactly. Exactly. So I mean, but that's a really interesting point, right? Because you know, I I listened to the the interviews with those guys, and I mean, I think that you know they're incredible, and. I'm definitely not like, you know, a TikTok kind of witch, right? I don't even know how to get on TikTok. I'm 45 years old. And for me, this kind of like, you know, this does stem from like an actual deep kind of interest. And I mean, it's a thing that I still do. You know, I started doing this in 2015. I did this ritual last night. You know, I kind of did it. I've got like, this is not planned, but I've got, this is a little ceremonial dagger thing that I'm in the process of making which isn't for stabbing or anything. It represents air, the element of air in magic. So when you perform magic, you kind of, you have to make stuff. You know, you make kind of like a cup to represent water and you represent a dagger to represent air. This is like a magic one thing that I'm kind of making in my studio. It's got a big lump of quartz on one end and some lava that I found in Iceland on the other end. So it's kind of, you know, I take it seriously. I'm not just kind of like, you know, I'm definitely an amateur. And there are times in my life when I'm really kind of doing this stuff every day and really into it. And then other times when I kind of don't feel the need to do it and I might stop for a few months. So I'm actually at the moment, I haven't really, I did it yesterday, but I, apart from that, it's probably been about maybe a month or longer since I last kind of thought about any of this stuff. So, but yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, you know, I wouldn't get into doing any of this stuff if you have any underlying mental health problems. Personally, this is like maybe going a bit too far. I don't think you should do it unless you've studied a lot of science. You know, like for me, having studied physics, I find that an incredibly grounding, uh, useful place to kind of stand if I'm going to go off and do weird stuff, you know, because it's like it's, it's such a kind of solid explanatory kind of thing about the world um you know the, the picture of the universe that you get from physics and just and just kind of rash rationality in general 
that for me, I don't really mind, you know, if stuff does start getting weird, I find it very easy to not get too caught up in it and to kind of ground myself. But if you're at all ungrounded, if you have any kind of like, any kind of mental health problems at all, I would I would strongly uh, urge caution with any of this stuff. Yeah, and like, like uh, Sean and Gina say, like don't just go to a graveyard and start trying to kind of like shout for ghosts to appear. Okay, we have to take a quick break, but we will be right back. Springtime is here. I've recently had all of my windows open, letting in the breeze, the smell of fresh flowers blooming all over my neighborhood. This is what a house should smell like. It should not smell like your cat's litter box. Thankfully, Pretty Litter makes that very easy. Nothing beats Pretty Litter's ability to instantly trap odor. It's ultra-absorbent, lightweight, low-dust, and one six-pound bag works for up to a month. It also gives me peace of mind knowing Pretty Litter's crystals change color to indicate early signs of potential illness in my cat, like urinary tract infections, kidney issues, and more. This is especially useful now that my cat is hanging out constantly by our screen door, getting visitations from coyotes, raccoons, squirrels, other cats, who knows what else. So it's very helpful knowing that if he picks up anything weird from them, I'll notice right away in his litter. When I first got my cat Merlin, I tried using the cheap cat litter that comes in those huge, giant bags from the pet store. That stuff is awful. Some of it smells worse than the smells it's supposed to be covering up. It does not have to be like that. There's a better way to live. There's no reason for your house to smell like your cat's litter box. If your house smells like a cat's litter box, that's on you. That's not on your cat. Pretty Litter is amazing. You should give it a try. Go to prettylitter.com slash otherworld to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. That's prettylitter.com slash otherworld to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Otherworld listeners. I'm excited to tell you about a show that I love and I think you're going to love as well. It's called Sophia with an F, starring Sophia Franklin. This show is about as different from Otherworld as a show could possibly be, which is why I think many people were very, very shocked when I got invited on as a guest around Halloween. It was really the crossover that nobody expected. I'll never forget the day my episode came out and every single one of my college-age cousins texted me all at the same time. Very confused, but also very excited. It was nice to hear from all of them, though, and uh, finally get some respect. I had a great time on the show. Sophia is really down to earth, which is why I think her interviews are so good. We talked about Otherworld, the paranormal, getting into this whole thing unexpectedly, as I did, and a lot of other stuff that I think normally does not get discussed on Sophia with an F. Normally in the show, Sophia Franklin goes deep on sex, life, mental health, relationships, and everything in between. You could get Sophia all to yourself every Monday for solo mini episodes and every Thursday with her ride or die best friends, experts, and some famous guests on a host of other topics, topics that are not safe for the dinner table, from foursomes and sugar daddies to wild sexcapades and tips for keeping things fresh in the bedroom. It's raw and laugh-out-loud funny, no borders and no filters. My personal favorite is the episode with Walk a Flock of Flame, if you want somewhere to start. Listen to and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to be really bad at keeping track of my finances. A very stupid part of me believed that if I just don't look at my bank accounts and my credit card statements, the money will all still be there, even if I spent it on stupid stuff that month. Well, that's not how it works. I learned the hard way. It's quite the opposite. Usually, when I finally did look, I'd notice that there was some subscription I'd been paying for that I forgot to cancel or I got overcharged for something and it's too late to fix. But now I use Rocket Money to keep track of all of that for me so I don't have to worry. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so you could grow your savings. Rocket Money finds all of your bills and subscriptions for you, lays them out, and gives you the option to cancel them automatically, or it can negotiate a lower price for you. I recently tested this out on my internet bill, and they were able to negotiate a lower price for me. I saved like $300 doing this. If you're like me and you get scared checking your accounts, Rocket Money 
might be your savior. It's nice having everything in one place and under control. I promise you're going to be very happy once you finally do it. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash otherworld. That's rocketmoney.com slash otherworld. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, so when I first started practicing this stuff, I did have a couple of really weird, weird things happen to me. In fact, everything weird that's happened to me with, mag with, to me with magic basically happened in the first year of my practicing it. So I had this kind of funny thing where literally a week after I'd started doing these rituals, so I was just doing them every morning. I had this thing where I went to go and see a friend of mine uh, who's a, um, a, composer, a music composer who I, who I work with in my, in my work. And I got a taxi over to her house, like an Uber. And I had this old, um, he was a Nigerian kind of elderly Uber driver who for kind of no reason at all, he was listening to this very, he was like a Christian radio station in the cab. And he for, for no reason at all started giving me this lecture about magic and about how evil it was and about how nobody should get into it and about how there were real magicians in the world. And I was just like, ah, oh, uh-huh. Ah, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, cool. No, okay, I'm going to... Okay, man, taking that on board. And I obviously I didn't mention anything to him. But I was like, that was strange. And then I got to my friend's house and we were hanging out. And she was like, oh, look at this video. And she got this thing up on YouTube. So I hadn't told her anything about that I'd been practicing magic. I'd not mentioned it to her at all. She opened up this video on YouTube, which is a video called Powers of Ten, which is a video, I think it was made in the kind of mid 70s. And it's basically, it's kind of an animation that shows what happens if you zoom out from Earth. So you start off at Earth and then it keeps zooming out and every kind of like step is a power of 10 larger than the one before. And you end up kind of like in interstellar space. And I was thinking, oh, this is weird because that's exactly the way that these rituals begin, right? You imagine you're getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you're kind of filling the universe. And then... I don't know if she put it on or if it just auto-played on YouTube. The very next thing that came on was one of these stupid YouTube videos of a guy in his kitchen singing. And he was singing that, I think it's a Frank Sinatra song where it begins, I reached out to the tree of life and picked a plum. And now everything's starting to hum. The best is yet to come. And I was like, well, fuck, this is kind of weird, right? The tree of life, this is like, I've suddenly started doing it and now everything's starting to hum. And I didn't say anything to her. And because I because I was kind of high, I was just like, oh my God, this is intense. This is kind of... Yeah, so, so I can kind of tell you about the really <coughs> strange event now. All right, so this was in July 2015. So I'd been practicing magic, I think, since about October 2014. So I guess this is about nine months into this kind of practice. So I, I live in London, but I grew up in the countryside in a, a county called Gloucestershire in southwest England, which is very rural. And the place where I live, well, where I grew up, is a little village in the middle of the countryside. And my parents still live there in the house that, um, basically the house I grew up in. And um, they'd gone on holiday. So this was in July 2015. They'd gone on holiday and I'd just come to stay in the empty house and basically look after their cat and just enjoy kind of being in the countryside. And one evening I was like, you know, it was about five in the evening, uh, nice kind of summer, summer evening. And I was like, right, I'm going to, I'm going to practice magic. I'm going to do, I'm going to do my rituals. And since I had a bit of time and, you know, their house is a lot nicer than the kind of scuzzy flat that I was living in at the time in London, I was like, all right, I'm going to kind of do this properly. So in the book on magic that I've got, it advises having a, a ritual bath before you do this stuff. So kind of like a cleansing. So the idea is that, that ideally you have a shower first to get rid of the actual physical kind of gunk that's on you. Then you run yourself a bath 
And you can put in, you know, kind of nice sort of, I don't know, nice smelling oils, kind of really luxuriate in the kind of the, this sort of ritual kind of cleansing. What I actually did was I ran, I had a shower, ran a bath, and um, there was some of this like pink Himalayan salt by the bath that I don't know why my parents had it there. I put that in and I just had this bath with this kind of, kind of salty, I can't even, I don't remember what I was thinking, you know, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, that would be a kind of, that seems like a, you know, it's better than putting in like bubble bath, right? It at least felt a bit more kind of symbolically kind of charged. So I had this, had this bath in the salt water, cleaned, and then I went into my, what had been my bedroom when I actually was growing up in this house and it's just, like still kind of just a bedroom. And I did the rituals. So I did the, the banishing ritual that I spoke about. Then I was doing the um, this middle pillar ritual. So I'd done the bit where you draw light down through your chakras or through you know these kind of sephirot, these kind of energy centers of the body. And then the final part of the ritual is you do something called um, circulation of the light or circulation of the light body, it's sometimes called, where basically what you do, you're imagining that light is circulating around your body uh, in synchronization to your breath. So you inhale and it comes up one side of your body and you exhale and it flows down the other side of your body. Again, I'm kind of getting this sort of slight psychological alarm bell about just being really open about this stuff. You can read about this stuff anywhere, but don't take me as being a kind of expert or a teacher. You know, I don't think this stuff is occult in the sense of the original meaning of occult, which is hidden. It's easy to find, but, you know, if anybody is interested in this, you should go and do it, uh, you know, the proper way by reading about it and, and, yeah, doing it properly. So, right, I was circulating this light around my body, kind of in sync with my breath. And I wasn't in a particularly kind of, you know, special mental state. I was probably kind of distracted. I think I was thinking about what I do after I finished, you know, I probably would have like gone out for a little walk around the village and maybe thought about what I was going to have, uh, what I was going to eat later that night. And then I kind of started to feel really good. And I was inhaling and exhaling and seeing this light flow up one side of my body and down the other side. And I kind of started seeing in my mind, but really strongly, this light be almost like mercury, like liquid mercury, kind of quicksilver, kind of silvery stuff moving around me. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, this is great. I'm really kind of seeing this. And I felt really good. I felt kind of pumped. And and then I started kind of thinking, actually, I think I may be a bit too into this. This kind of almost feels too good. Like something was happening, right? Something was kind of brewing. And then I, I suddenly got this impression that my skin had gone green, like pale green. And I was sort of... I don't know whether my eyes were open or closed. I think they were probably closed, but I really had this strong impression that my skin was this kind of pale, kind of leaf green color. And then almost like I kind of, I kind of separated from my own body. So it was as if there had been one of me and then suddenly there were two of me. And the other me that had kind of appeared was stood to my left and about a foot ahead of me. And it was this green, muscly being. Uh, so kind of probably naked, I think. Definitely kind of like, you know, not really, I think probably naked. I didn't really see if I had a dick or anything, but you know, this green kind of muscly being was stood so that it was stood to my left and about a foot ahead. So if it wanted to look at me, it would have had to look over its right shoulder. And I could kind of merge myself back into being it and experience myself as this muscly green being. And I was still doing this thing with circulating the light with my breath. So I was kind of seeing this silver light move around my green body. And I could also kind of just step out of it. So this kind of entity was kind of next to me. And, and it was stood as if it was just checking itself out. Like it was kind of just looking down at its hands really admiringly. You know, like if you got a kind of guy who's like really into 
sort of bodybuilding or something. They might stand in front of a mirror at the gym and just admire themselves, like look at their arms and look at their chest. It was kind of looking at itself like that and totally, you know, I felt that this thing was completely ignoring me. And it was, I think probably if somebody had walked into the room there at that moment and said, right, is there, is there actually a green person in the room with you? I'd have probably said no, you know, actually looking. But the impression of its presence was so overwhelming that it felt just as real as, you know, there was a bookshelf next to me. And it felt just, I was experiencing it just as strongly as kind of anything else in the room, even though, and you know, and seeing it in some, some kind of way. And it was completely ignoring me and it just looked really happy that it had suddenly manifested, right? As if it, as if it, you know, that was the impression I got. It's like, it didn't exist. And suddenly it's like, oh, I've suddenly exist. And was just kind of looking at itself and being like, you know, just checking itself out. And I was like, I was kind of thinking, well, this is, this is weird. And um, I'd read in an interview with Alan Moore um, about how you should talk to um, demons. And the basic advice was just be polite, be respectful. So I kind of, I think I said to it out loud, uh, you're a fine looking being, could I ask your name? And it looked over its right shoulder at me and just said, bell and again this was you know ha, you know the kind of where the line become, between objective and subjective is here is just incredibly kind of blurred right but this was the impression i had that this thing had just said that its name was bell if you look up if you kind of google bell demon you'll find like baal it's the root who was an ancient i think sumerian demon it's the root of like beelzebub you know, it's a kind of known demonic name. But did you know about that? Did you know that? Not consciously, but, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of information that, you know, we, we absorb and don't necessarily kind of know that we know, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, it's worth pointing out. It's just like, I mean, you're not thinking about demons normally, are you? Mm-mm. No. That's always, no intro. Yeah, that strikes me, you know? Like, I even people's dreams you dream about things that are familiar to you generally i'm always struck when somebody's like seeing something that's sort of not in their their yeah. bank their bank of uh, or their their toolbox if you will you know absolutely yeah yeah well i mean like you know jung had a lot to say about this you know the collective unconscious there is a kind of he said there was like a storehouse of just kind of knowledge that isn't really acquired through our through our you know empirical experience there's a bunch of stuff that we all know about from birth you know which is i don't know whether i believe that or not but it is it is a kind of it would be a way to explain uh, a lot of these things so this thing did not seem like a demon right it was kind of like it was a it was scary in the way that like a kind of shit halloween costume is scary right in other words not very scary Something that was really weird about it was that it almost seemed like a hollow shell. So I don't know, some of your uh, listeners might um, know about this, but um, if you ever work making like um, 3D models on a computer, like kind of Pixar type animations, those objects that look um, three-dimensional are actually just, um, they're hollow, right? So you know, Buzz Lightyear, it's actually hollow. You know, if you if you had the software that they were making him on, you could just move the camera inside, and he's just a hollow shell with a completely with a with a completely like infinitely thin surface, right? So he's that those are just two dimensional surfaces, and you know there's sort of no substance to them. This thing felt like that. It didn't feel like it had a kind of like a solidity to it. You know, it almost felt like a kind of like like a very flimsy shell that looked superficially like this kind of muscly green thing, but there kind of wasn't really that much to it. And I was trying to find the ref when I was sort of just researching earlier, trying to, uh, you know, for this interview, kind of Googling things. I'm sure that somewhere Alan Moore has spoken about um, a medieval idea of demons, that when you get closer to them, so when you're far away, they look three-dimensional, and when you get close to them, they look two-dimensional. I remember somewhere there's an interview with Alan Moore where he says that this was an, this is an idea that you meet in medieval kind of books on demonology, and it's kind of interesting that 
there was this, it's not exactly the same thing, but there was a definite sort of two-dimensionality to this being. Like it wasn't solid. It was more like a kind of 2D surface wrapped up into a kind of 3D shape. So uh, it said its name was Bell. And then I was like, well, I'm going to ask who you are again, but this time I'm going to use uh, tarot cards. So I had some tarot cards with me. Um, I only had, so uh, the, the way the tarot is kind of um, divided up, there's um, a set, there's a bunch of cards called the Minor Arcana, which is the majority of the, um, of the cards. So most of the cards are in the Minor Arcana. They're a bit similar to a regular pack of cards. You know, they have like, um, you know, the ace, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, and then the kings and queens and stuff. And then there's a set called the Major Arcana, which tend to be used more in the, um, the kind of basic magic that I was doing. And the reason why they get used is because the major arcana can be mapped onto the tree of life kind of perfectly. So the, the major arcana and the Kabbalistic tree of life, which is the system I was using uh, in my magic, um, align kind of really closely. They kind of dovetail together. They're kind of really their one, one kind of unified system. This was the thing that Alistair Crowley and these Golden Dawn people worked out in the early 20th century. So I had these tarot cards with me. And I, um, so I said, right, I'm going to ask your name using the tarot. So I shuffled the cards, laid them out, and I picked three cards. Normally, when I, normally at this point and when I was doing magic, I'd only pick one card if I ever did the tarot. I'd just pick a card, look at it, kind of think about it and just have it, you know, in my mind through the day kind of thing as some sort of guidance or something like that. But um, uh, this time I picked three. So I'd asked this kind of entity who it was and I picked three cards and I picked the death card, the devil card and a card called the star. So ordinarily death is actually not as sinister as it sounds. I think most people interpret it as being about rebirth and cutting away the old, you know, cutting away dead wood, um, you know, kind of like a, a necessary death of kind of old shit so that you can kind of move forward. The devil card normally, I mean, everyone's got their own interpretation. So this is my interpretation. I think it's quite mainstream. Uh, it kind of refers to being too caught up in material shit. So, you know, being too caught up in the trappings of money and material possessions. Um, and the star, is, for me, kind of means that when you are down in that, you know, the everyday kind of corporeal material world that we all live in, remember that there is this little point of light somewhere, which is a kind of reminder that there is this higher spiritual realm. So the devil is kind of negative, but death and the star are kind of weirdly positive. But in this context, I felt that none of those readings applied. It felt like this thing was just showing off. It was kind of saying, I'm deaf and I'm the devil, and I come from the realm of the stars. You know, it kind of really felt like this kind of braggadocio kind of showing off type thing. And I was like, all right then. And then I kind of just felt like, right, I think I've had enough of this. And I'd started to feel a little bit scared, like not, not you know, kind of terrified, but I was just like, okay, this is slightly freaking me out a bit. And I don't know if I want to be having this experience anymore. So then I did this banishing ritual again and it was completely gone. You know, it just completely out of my consciousness. Uh, I just, yeah, I just had no sense that this being was, was kind of present in my consciousness anymore. And then I just continued with like my life basically. And I didn't think about it for, I don't think I even told my girlfriend at the time about it. I might have mentioned it, but it was just this kind of weird thing that I almost just put away somewhere and didn't think about. And it was only a few months later, I was talking to a friend about it. And as I was <laughs> just telling the story, we were both just sort of increasingly going, man, this is fucking weird. What a strange thing to happen. And then I guess the kind of final, the sort of little epilogue of the story was that um, I realized that, um, so there was this artist, William Blake, who's obviously a very famous painter and poet um, from the, um, I'm gonna say 18th century. He did a little painting, which is actually in the, um, the Tate Britain uh, art gallery in London. I've been to go and see it. 
uh, it's a small painting called The Ghost of a Flea. And it's tiny. It's like, you know, you could kind of almost hold it in the palm of your hand. William Blake was basically a visionary and mystic. And he'd quite often just see like angels appearing. You know, he'd be kind of walking around London and would just see, or he'd kind of see, he wrote, do you know the hymn Jerusalem? Yes. Uh, which is a, yeah, so he wrote the words to that. And that's kind of all about seeing ancient Jerusalem superimposed onto the kind of English countryside, which was a kind of thing that actually used to happen to him. Right? He was like a visionary. He did this painting called The Ghost of a Flea, which is where it was, um, it came out of an experience that he'd had at a friend's house where he was just, I think, walking down the staircase in his friend's house when he suddenly encountered this being that had green skin and muscles and this kind of slightly monstrous look about it. And he, I don't know how this was commute. I don't know whether they spoke or if he just kind of knew, but uh, he just, um, and what's quite strange, if you look at the painting, I had, so I have known about this painting since I was a teenager. I hadn't thought about it for years. But then if you look at this painting, it's actually quite similar in many respects to this thing that I saw. So it's this green, muscly being. I think it's kind of wearing a loincloth. I can, should I get a picture of it up for you? Oh, I have it, yeah. You have it, right? So it's kind of checking itself out, right? It's not paying any attention to the person who's painting it. I'm not sure if that's a mirror that it's holding, but it's kind of, it seems quite kind of self-absorbed. And it's, uh, but it's just a flea. It's this kind of completely insignificant kind of, you know, it's not like a picture of like Satan or like one of the kind of dukes of hell or something, you know, it's just this kind of totally inconsequential kind of little scrap of kind of ego. And um, there's also stars in that painting. I was going to say, that's an interesting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind so of flying down be behind him, which is sort of similar to what you were describing. Right. Yeah. So very, very weird. Um, yeah. So that was the uh, that was the supernatural being that I encountered. And um, yeah, I think it would be nice to hear to close us out. Like, as a curious person um, and a person who went at least pretty far in the field of physics uh, with your education, like what do you make of all of this and what do you think people don't understand? So basically, in my work as an artist, a couple of years ago, I traveled to, I did a residency at um, CERN in Switzerland, which is where the Large Hadron Collider is. So me and a friend, uh, another artist I work with, stayed there for two months being artists in residence at, at the Large Hadron Collider, one of which was pretty crazy. And um, we made a lot of very magic-infused art that they weren't too happy about, doing kind of rituals down in the detectors and all this kind of stuff. But one of the things we were really interested in there was, because I've studied physics, I'm not very artistically interested in it, right? I've kind of done it. It doesn't really hold that much kind of artistic value for me. But we were really interested in talking to the physicists there about consciousness. Like, how is it that we can be made out of atoms and yet be conscious, you know, in the way that, like, you know, this table is made out of atoms, but it isn't conscious. What's going on? And the thing I ended up thinking is that we don't live in the physical world. We live, you know, human beings, conscious beings, live an incredibly long way away from physical reality so far that to even get close to that reality, we have to build large hadron colliders. We have to build these huge kind of bits of equipment just to even reach what matter is really doing, right? And like, when you read about what matter is really doing, if you kind of, you know, if you study physics, matter's doing things that are completely incomprehensible to us. You know, quantum mechanics says that, um, you know, a table, is 99.999% empty space. And the bit that isn't empty space is this kind of complex, you know, it's made out of complex numbers, which are things you can't even, you know, imagine. And, you know, electrons can be in, in an infinite number of places simultaneously. Like physical reality, whatever that is, is not the world that we live in, right? What we live in is a world that's completely generated by, you know, it's, it's not generated by our own minds because there is clearly 
you know, there is, I believe there is a physical world out there, but we don't live in it. And we live completely in a thing that's constructed by our own perception. So I think part of what, part of my kind of answer to how I'd interpret it is that in our own minds, as well as being, you know, physical stuff and, and you know, the, the objects of science, there are gods and there are ghosts and there are demons. You know, a lot of this, you know, this stuff, it, you know, if it exists in our mind, it kind of exists and we only exist in our own minds. Like everything that's happening to you and me right now is actually just happening inside your own mind. It's completely being produced by your perceptual system, interacting with this totally mysterious, unknowable external world. So that's kind of part of part of the answer. And I guess the other thing I think is that I think that this is a kind of, these are both like pet theories and you know, I'm not a psychologist or a philosopher or a scientist. So, you know, I'm sure they could be ripped apart quite easily. But I know that, um, for instance, like when people have multiple personality disorders, I've read about um, how they create a new personality. So people with multiple personality disorder often have experienced like really intense trauma and it's so overwhelming and painful, the trauma, that they just sort of create a new personality that isn't the traumatized one. And the way that they kind of do it is they almost hypnotize themselves. So I can't, you know, interviews have been carried out with people with multiple personalities, uh, talking about how they do it. And they kind of almost go into a trance-like state and suddenly the old personality sort of gets shuffled off stage and a new personality comes into the spotlight. So. I kind of have a feeling that what we human beings are, it's a bit like, imagine if you had a massive bag of Lego, right? All those kind of Lego bricks. And there's a great big bag of Lego and the part that you think is you, like your conscious personality is a construction out of some Lego bricks. And that's the kind of bit that's kind of sticking out of the bag that everyone can see. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there that just isn't conscious. It just, I think, so I think the thing with doing any of this stuff, practicing kind of magic, uh, meditation, anything like that, I think what you're doing is you're massively weakening the boundary that normally exists between the conscious and the unconscious. You're making that kind of membrane much more permeable so that unconscious stuff can just come out and you start kind of seeing it, which I think maybe also could be an explanation for a lot of uh, supernatural experiences that people have. So I think that this green thing, it was just a very basic kind of sticking together of a few things in my psyche that didn't really work as a kind of, you know, it couldn't really say much. All it could really do was check itself out and have an ego. And, you know, and it, and it kind of seemed hollow. And then, you know, to me, and then it was very easy to just get rid of it and it probably just disintegrated back into the kind of, back into the Lego bag. You know, if we do, if, you know, we do basically live in a thing made by our own consciousness, then that just leaves the door open for everything. You know what I mean? Because like you say, we don't know what our consciousness is, but it does seem hard to argue with the fact that our reality is completely determined by our, by our consciousness. So, yeah. All right. Thank you, Jack, for telling us that story. Very interesting one. Probably something that me personally, I would be too scared to continue doing, but this Jack is very different than the Jack hosting the show. To be honest with you, this magic stuff has always kind of scared me. Um, it's very mysterious. I think it is scary. What I thought was really interesting about Jack's story is that there were a few things he described with those rituals that I have heard come up in people's stories before. The one I'm specifically thinking of is a story that has not come out on this podcast yet, but you will one day hear. And I'm hoping that you guys make a little mental note of this episode because you'll probably recognize what I'm talking about when it comes up. And I'm always, I'm always very fascinated when different cultures end up doing the same exact thing exact same thing when it comes to these mysterious forces and how we try to deal with them. 
I'm always very fascinated when people end up in the same place, starting from very, very different perspectives. Something to consider. And while this magic stuff does intimidate me, it's also very, very interesting. I'm excited to dive down into the hole a little bit further later on because even the history of it is super interesting. In fact, where I live not far away, up by the Jet Propulsion Lab, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, there was a lot of very famous magic practices taking place a long time ago. Aleister Crowley was there himself doing some kind of weird ceremonies with the founder of NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, Jack Parsons, who eventually died under very suspicious circumstances. And I could be wrong, but I believe a man named L. Ron Hubbard was also in the mix with those two. There's a lot of strange things that were happening in the woods of Pasadena back in the day, and that might be an interesting episode in the future. But for now, that brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank Jack so much for telling us these stories. I'm glad that Jack seems to be doing okay, even though he was definitely messing with things in a way that I personally would not, uh, to say the least. That brings us to the end of this episode. The title is The Ghost of a Flea, and you've been listening to Otherworld. Otherworld is hosted and executive produced by myself, Jack Wagner. Our theme song is by Cobraman. The soundtrack of this episode is by Juice Jackal. Editing and engineering by Theo Schaefer. This is an independent show, so please show us your support by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, and telling your friends. If you want to hear more episodes and support the show, you could do so at patreon.com otherworld. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at otherworldpod on Instagram and Twitter. And finally, if you or somebody you know has experienced something paranormal, supernatural, or unexplained, please send us that story at stories at otherworldpod.com.